Take your Bibles with me, if you would, this morning and turn to John chapter 15. John 15. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles on the back table. Um, feel free to get up and go grab one. It's good to have a copy of God's Word in front of us, and if you choose to do that on your phone, that's great. If you choose to have a physical copy, that's great as well. Um, but it is, uh, it's good to have these words in front of you, one, because they're the very words of God um, in front of us, um, and it is incredibly important for us to look at these together and to be able to read together the text. Um, but then secondly, you need to know that when I'm saying it there, I'm not making it up. I think that's important. Um, it's an important thing when you hear God's Word preached that you weigh it against what you know to be true about the whole of God's Word. Um, and so that's what we try to do. That's what we seek to do every week. We seek to come to God's Word as those who, who know what's contained within it. Um, and that, that, that's predicated on a couple of things, a couple of ideas. One, that, that you're intentionally spending time in God's Word um, as those who have been redeemed, as those who know, who, who have been changed and are being transformed. Like the primary way that that happens is through time in God's Word. Um, and so spending time in God's Word for us is incredibly important as those who know um, that it is the very Word of God. Um, and so when I say things up here, um, your mind should be running. You should be, this is part of being a good listener, this is part of being an active listener. When I get up here, it's not time to, to, to power down. Like when I get up here, this is, it's time to go. Like we're going now, and this is important. Just like we went now with the worship, the incredible time of worship this morning. But just as that happens now, your hearts need to be engaged in the, in the same type of way because this is the, again, the very, very Word of God. So we're going to be in John chapter 15 this morning. We've been working our way through this series, and this is actually our seventh and final week and looking at uh, the I Am statements that Jesus gives us in, in uh, John's Gospel. We've been looking at these I Am statements, one, to explore Jesus' person, Right? To give us a picture of who Jesus is, because we know that what he did um, is contained also within his very person. So last week I gave you this, this metaphor of this, this sphere, right? So there's a sphere that we have before us, and Jesus is giving us different clues as to who he is and, and what he's about to do. Um, this, this passage here, as we come to John 15, is they're, they're getting up from the Last Supper and they're making the, their way towards the garden where we get to John chapter 18. And Jesus is teaching them as they go along. So we're seeing the sphere, we're rotating it slightly. Jesus is giving us a little bit bigger picture of that sphere as a whole. But it's important to see that because, um, because we know Jesus is claiming a, a, a bunch of different things. We've been, we've been looking at these statements. One, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Two, he says, I'm the light of the world. Three, he says, he's the door. Four, he says, he's the good shepherd. Um, five, he says that, uh, that and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking. Shoot, I'm blanking. But last week, we did the resurrection and the life. Okay, I got it back now. The resurrection and the life. And then last week, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then this week, we're looking at Jesus as the true vine. Um, sometimes that happens. Sometimes we blank. Okay. So uh, this morning, when we look at this, this passage, we're, we're keeping in mind all of those things, and we're adding to them. 
Uh, we can't look at these passages strictly in a vacuum. Um, these things are working together in concert to give us a big, broad understanding of who Jesus is. So John 15, we're going to read the first 11 verses, so let's read these together. John chapter 15, verse 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that, the, so that it may bear, bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove yourself to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abided in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we look at this text this morning, I pray that uh, your spirit would be with us, God, that it would guide us, that it would give us a greater understanding of what's going on here. Lord God, and just as John writes, uh, records Jesus saying in verse 11, uh, that these things are spoken to us so that our joy may be, uh, or that so Jesus' joy may be in us, and so that our joy may be made full. Lord, I pray that that would be our aim. Lord God, that when we come to your word, Lord, that we would desire to have our joy made full. Lord, because we know that true joy is only found in Jesus. It's not found in the things that we pursue in our daily lives um, that, are, that, are, that are different. It's not found in personal affirmation, it's not found in material wealth or, um, or knowledge, Lord God, but in the understanding um, of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So Lord, as we look at your word, we thank you, we praise you that you've revealed yourself to us in this way. Lord God, and I pray as we, um, as we move from this place then later today, that we would go as those who are rejoicing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, so there's a lot, of, a lot of things going on in this passage, but it, uh, one thing that I really want to f uh, focus in on this morning is, is the concept of abiding. Um, so I'm going to give you this statement here. Jesus' proclamation that he is the true vine indicates that he is God, and although we are prone to abide elsewhere, the only way we bear fruit and are made into the likeness of Jesus. I'll say that again. Jesus' proclamation that he is the true vine indicates that he is God, and although we are prone to abide elsewhere, the only, where, well, the only way we bear fruit and are made into the likeness of Jesus. So what we really want to do is just talk about this concept of abiding this morning. What does it mean to abide? And, and there's some negative examples in this passage as well, I mean, so we'll look at those too. But, but first of all, we want to kind of set the stage and get the context here. What, what's happening? Where is Jesus? Well, where is this coming from? Um, so if you just back up to the second half of the verse right before 15.1 into 14.31, 
and look at the, the, the very last sentence that Jesus speaks in that verse. He says, get up, let us go from here. So there's movement, right? Jesus is prompting movement uh, for, for the disciples because up until this point, they've been in the upper room. Um, they've been having supper together. There's been a lot of instruction that happens here. Um, and now Jesus is saying, okay, it's time to get up. It's time to go. So if we rewind a few weeks and get back to where we were uh, right, before the, right before Resurrection Sunday, um, this would be happening late on Thursday. Late on Thursday before uh, Jesus would be crucified on Friday. And so Jesus giving all of this instruction to his disciples and giving them a, a, a big, broad understanding of what's going on. He's speaking more and more plainly to them. Um, they're starting to get the picture um, and, 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 and things are escalating. And then when we get to verse or chapter 18, that's where Jesus is betrayed in the garden by Judas. And then he's tried, he's taken away, he's tried um, and, uh, and convicted. He carries his cross, uh, is crucified, and then buried. And then we know on Resurrection Sunday, we, we celebrated him rising again. So we see this, right? We see Jesus saying, get up, let us go from here. And so the, this is sort of like the, the inauguration of this walking discourse that he's going to give. So they're moving. There's this movement towards the garden. And I find this really interesting. One, because just some historical such historical things. And this, this is not necessarily um, what, what's going on in the text, but I think it's just a great picture. And I think John's readers probably would have latched onto this. Um, when Jesus uh, when Jesus gets up and walks, this is more of a, and when he starts to instruct them, this is more of a Greek tradition, not a Jewish one. So when he's walking, when he's moving, and he's speaking these things to the disciples, this is how, and Jesus does this a lot throughout the course of his ministry, um, but this is how a, a Greek instructor would be instructing his disciples, or those who were following him. So there's this school, um, it's called the Peripatetic School. Um, which is uh, a combination of a couple different words. It's sort of like, um, in our language, like uh, like bromance, like or, or frenemy, like where we take a couple of words and we combine them together, and I don't know what that's called, but, but we do that, right? So we take two words and we put them together, and, and so this is what the peripatetic school was. And basically it meant like something along the lines of, of, uh, um, of walking and instruction, just those two words combined together. And so there's this, this movement. Jesus gets up. The disciples are following him. Typically Jewish scholars, and when they would teach, they would sit and everyone else would stand. Um, so we're not going to do that today because you all would be oh, okay. Um, you would be sitting and, or standing and I would be sitting if, if we were to take that very literally. But so that's the typical way that instruction would be imparted in that context, typically within the synagogue, within the temple, um, it would be happening in that way. But Jesus is instructing his disciples in this very Greek-looking type of method. Um, this school, this peripatetic school, it was founded during Aristotle's lifetime, and so he taught there, and he was kind of the first guy to do this, and it really wasn't like anything more than he just liked to wander around. So he was just wandering around, and the people would follow him, and he was like, okay, if I, if I talk, how many of you are pacers when you talk on the phone? I'm a pacer, so like I'm on the phone, and I'm just like walking around, and I'm, I'm talking, I, Mark knows, like I get up, and I'm like moving all around when I, whenever I'm on the phone. It's just easier for me to think that way, and I think that's probably the way Aristotle was. 
Um, and so Jesus does this a bunch throughout the course of his ministry, but it gives us a whole new meaning, I think, in light of, of the fact that uh, we're mere minutes away, right? This is We're moving so dramatically towards the betrayal and trial of Jesus that would lead to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. And then, and then what that accomplishes is opening up of salvation and deliverance to all people, okay? So there's this, it's like this neat picture, and it's almost like a metaphor, and I think that John's readers would have, would have probably seen this, like Jesus walking, get up, let's go from here, Jesus is walking. And it also gives us a nice little tie-in when, when he calls himself the vine as well. Paul writes to the Romans, he says that salvation is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So we know that salvation is being opened up. It's not limited in scope anymore. It's not just for the Jewish nation, um, like they were thinking, right? They were looking for a political deliverance. They were looking for something to, someone to ride in, to cast off the Romans, and to be reestablished as a political power. Um, but what Jesus is actually going to do is open up salvation for all types of people. We are, as those, as those who come together here in Jamestown, North Dakota, probably none of us have Jewish heritage. And so this is good news for us. This is good news that we now can be a part of uh, the salvation, or take part in the salvation that Jesus provides. So Jesus was giving a walking discourse in a way that, we, that, that looked to be very similar to the Greeks as he prepared to blow the doors off this narrow nationalistic kind of tendency that the Jews had about how they would be delivered. So, so okay, so they're walking, and, and Jesus is talking, the disciples and Jesus, and chances are when they're walking, okay, so just picture this with me, they're, they walk out of the upper room, and they're, they're making their way through the streets of Jerusalem, and there's a couple of things that they might have seen as they, as they walked along. And I'm going to read you this quote. This one author writes about this walking discourse. He states that uh, there are two possible things that they, they might have seen. Um, some, this is the quote. Some believe he, that he took them from the upper room, took the disciples from the upper room, through the streets and into the temple. Passover was at hand. And at that time, a, the, the great and beautiful gates of the temple were left open all night so that the pilgrims might pass in and out. If he did take them there, as they passed through the gates, they would, have see, they would see with the light of the Passover moon quite likely shining upon it the national emblem. What is it? The golden vine. So they're walking along and they see this vine on the temple. It had been suggested that he had spoke uh, by the size of this gate. I am the vine, the true. I think it's poetically beautiful. Others think he started out of the city altogether. This is a second option. Started out of the city altogether. They just passed through the gates of the city and went towards, uh, went towards Kidron. And somewhere there under God's sky, he uttered this great allegory. If so, wherever they looked, they could see vines growing all around them. So there's a visual component to what Jesus is saying. There's a visual component whether they're walking past the temple or whether they're leaving Jerusalem altogether. There's a visual component. They're seeing vines growing. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, they would have had a visual in their eyes. Whether they saw these things or not, I mean, this is, this is somewhat speculative, um, although I don't know that they could have made it out without seeing some vine. Um, the point is that the vine is a dynamic image in the Jewish life. And, and we see the vine even coming up in, in the Psalms. We see it coming up in Isaiah. Um, and and it's a, it, it is a dynamic image in 
in, in Jewish life. And so Jesus is making a statement then about the Jewish nation. Um, what he's saying now is, I am the true vine. Right? In verse, in verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. What he's saying, when he makes that statement, is very clearly, your nation is not the true vine. I am the true vine. And he spent a ton of time talking about the problems that aren't fully addressed outside of him. So even if you've gone through these seven statements... Um, of which I failed to relate to you uh, in a timely fashion earlier. Um, as we've gone through these seven statements, uh, we recognize that, that each one of those is addressing a specific problem that we have that was being, or that was attempted to be addressed by someone um, outside of, of Jesus uh, that was attempted to be addressed by the spiritual leadership, the Jewish leadership of the day. So we talk about Jesus, the bread. We're talking about satisfaction, we're talking about finding our satisfaction first and foremost of Jesus. And, and if at that time the Jewish leaders would have been pointing to other things to, to find satisfaction in. Um, when we talk about Jesus as the light of the world, we talk about him addressing the confusion that we find in our world. We talk about that confusion that we find and that the Jewish leadership would have been, would have been telling you, no, you find purpose, you find understanding in keeping the law. And Jesus said, no, that's not, that's not how that problem was addressed. That problem was addressed by looking to me, who is going to keep the law perfectly. Um, so uh, right now he's saying, I am the true vine. So we want to dive in and think a little bit about what, the, what, what problems he's addressing. So a literal translation of this verse, of, of verse 1, would, would simply read this. I am the vine, the true. There's a definite article, the, the, right before the, 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 the true. So something probably like this is how it would have sounded to his listeners. He, uh, I am the vine, the genuine or authentic. I am the vine, the genuine or authentic. Which tells us one thing, that there are posers, right? There are poser vines out there. I don't know, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, there are vines out there that are saying that we're the true, authentic vine, but they're posers. They can't, they can't, they can't offer what Jesus offers. Um, here's another quote from an author talking about this idea very specifically. Jesus' main point is messianic in nature as he makes the outright claim to be the vine that Israel failed to be. And this takes us back to the understanding that Jesus was prepping to, to sort of blow those doors off that nationalistic, narrow understanding that would encompass deliverance. Abiding in nationalism bears no fruit, as we're going to see as we move through this passage. Abiding in that nationalism that, that they were saying bears no fruit, but abiding in Christ does. And there's a right place to abide and a wrong place to abide as we're seeing this right place is Jesus. And what does that look like for us? What does that look like? So in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, we have seven references to abiding. We have seven references to abiding. These are important, right? We see one in, uh, in verse 4. There are two that are commands, verse 4 and verse 9. In verse 4, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. So that's an imperative. It's a command. He's telling us to abide in him. And then in verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Then here's the command, abide in my love. 
So we're told to abide in Jesus, and we're told to abide in his love. And then there are five additional references to abiding here, and these are important. Um, these are results or conditions, uh, grounds. They give us an understanding of what happens if we abide and what the result of abiding is. Um, in verse 4, you can't bear fruit outside of Jesus. It's this condition, right? We know that we have to be abiding in Jesus in order to bear fruit. In verse 5, in Jesus you will bear fruit. Same idea. In verse 6, if you don't abide, you will dry up, right? So the result of not abiding is, is drying up. Verse 7, if you do abide, you will have... At, at, you will ask and you will have whatever you desire. It's this idea of, of the grounds of or the grounds of abiding results in having whatever we ask. So we look at this um, and we ask the question, well, what is abiding? What does that actually look like? What does that look like practically in my in my daily life? Um, the understanding I think is is one that we want to make active but really at its core is passive. It's a passive understanding. When Jesus is saying, abide in me, this is very close to what we were talking about last week. We were talking about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And that Jesus has forged a path for us. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures. And that he is the way that provides, or he provides a way for us to have relationship with God the Father. And so, but this idea is passive because the idea is simply just to rest in Christ. It's the same idea that we had last week. It's to rest in Christ. I think what we want to do is we want to make this about something that we do and not something of, that Jesus has done. And so what we want to do is we want to emphasize the active, like I must abide, rather than the abide in Christ in peace. Again, Jesus is the true vine. And so we rest in Him. He's the source of life. He's the giver of all things. So what He's saying when He's saying this is like, He's like saying, abide in me, rest in me. Find your satisfaction in me. Find your understanding and fullness in me. Find your set-apartness in me. Find your identity in me. Find your protection and security in me. Place your faith, your trust, your belief in me. And then you say, rest in me. Again, this would, this would have been so potent for the Jewish, uh, for his Jewish hearers. Because one, they would, have been, they would have been seeing and thinking about this imagery and thinking to themselves, okay, Israel um, is the vine and we're going to be reestablished as a nation. Um, and then uh, when, they, when they heard Jesus talking like this, they would have started to think, well, what, what, what's going on? How is this happening? And the Jewish leadership that, that was actually sort of in conflict with Jesus here, um, that's coming to a head, um, what they wanted to do is this idea of abiding, this idea of rest. They wanted to take it and they wanted to reduce it to a time frame. They wanted to take it and they just wanted to put it in a, a box, in a time frame. 
Um, this is a Sabbath understanding. This is, this is, they set aside a whole day. And then they, what they did is they set aside this day because it was commanded to them in the Ten Commandments. But then what they did is they set up a bunch of laws around this. This command. They set up a bunch of laws around this. They said, don't look in a mirror, because if you do, you might see a gray hair, and you might pluck it out. And that would be work, and you would not be resting. But see how that fundamentally misses the point of what rest is? Of what Sabbath rest is intended to be? It's not a day. It's a concept. They protected this day with all of their might. But it's not a day that marks our rest. It's an abiding and abiding in Jesus Christ. There's a recognition that happens here when we do this, when we abide in Jesus. We recognize that we are incapable of dealing with our sin problem on our own. So last week when we were talking about the, the world and our inclinations, it tells us to do, do, do. When Jesus is saying done, 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 it's all done. Your sin has been taken away. It's been removed from you. Oh, this is a recognition that we're incapable of bringing God glory on our own. Remember, we've talked about this multiple times, that, that our purpose in this world is to, to bring God glory. That's why he created us. He created us to bring him glory. But that cannot be fully realized outside of Jesus Christ. And we are capable of loving others on our own. That's a recognition that we're incapable of loving others on our own. If we have not experienced love in the way that God imparts it to us through his son Jesus, then we are incapable of loving others on our own. And so then we move to this, oh, this, fruit, this fruit idea, right? When Jesus is saying bearing fruit, if we're resting and abiding in Christ, then we have a full recognition that we cannot bring about the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control on our own. That's what, that's what the Bible tells us is the fruit of the Spirit. If we're in Christ, if we're abiding in Christ, if we're resting in His work for us, then the Spirit of Christ indwells us. And this is the product of that indwelling Spirit. But we do recognize, we recognize we're incapable of dealing with our sin. We're incapable of bringing God glory. We're incapable of loving others. We're incapable of producing the fruit that God says is a result of having the indwelling spirit. But we do know now that Christ did all of these things perfectly. Christ perfectly dealt with our sin. Christ perfectly brought God glory. Christ loved others. He put others in his own place. He did not elevate the idea of himself above the idea of others. And so in this recognition, this is what it means to abide in Christ, and this is what it means to then bear fruit. So what does that look like practically for us? Look at this passage. There's, there's so many of these different ideas contained within here related to bearing fruit. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So what does this fruit look like? We talked about it just a, a second ago, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. And, and note that Paul, when he writes that, that fruit idea is singular. It's not plural. He doesn't say these are the fruits of the Spirit. He says this is the fruit of the Spirit because all of these things will be markers of the Christian life. Now, we're not, we're not perfect, right? We're not sanctified entirely. We're not perfectly like Jesus. And so there's a, there's a time period where we're going to be spending this time and God is going to be making us more and more into his image. And so we're not going to reflect all of these things perfectly. Um, but all of these things are active in our lives. We, we, don't get, we don't get to pick from this list. God is changing us and shaping us and moving us toward these things. We might be an impatient person by nature. We might be an impatient person by nature. That doesn't mean that God isn't working on you in that. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit, singular fruit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So that's step one. We believe that Jesus is sufficient and addresses our insufficiencies. Our insufficiencies in dealing with our sin problem, in bringing God glory, um, in loving others the way that we ought, in producing this fruit that only comes through the indwelling Spirit. So the recognition of that is step one. And then we trust God is at work. We trust that we are being transformed. If we are resting and abiding in Christ, we trust that He is doing those things. And we know that He is. We don't, get to, we don't get to come to the end of our day and say, well, God just isn't doing anything in my life. That's not true. That's simply not true. That is the promise contained within Scripture. There's a promise contained within Scripture that God is making us more into His Son's image. Bearing fruit means becoming more like Christ. So the idea is then that we're not, we are only able to act out our purpose and do what God requires by resting in the fact that He is the only one who could do these things perfectly. So God frees us to live in concert with what he has created us to do, with what was originally intended, pre-sin. He does that by giving himself freely as our substitute. This is so counterintuitive. This is so counterintuitive. Because, again, our inclination is to do, do, do. We want to do all of these things in order to set ourselves apart, but we simply cannot. All we can do is rest. And that's all we're being commanded to do. Jesus is saying, abide in me. Jesus is doing all of these things by giving of himself freely to be our substitute. It is not... We can't look at this passage and, and focus primarily on ourselves. Um, I think that's a, a pretty significant danger when looking at this passage and why I led with all this back information about the Jewish nation, about how they were looking at abiding in something other than Jesus Christ. Um, and so um, what we need to do is focus then on how this impacts us as a people, as a people who are set apart in Jesus, not as a single individual person. 
because this has so much dramatic import for us. And I think that one of the big places that it does is in verse 2. We read verse 2 of chapter 15. Every branch, uh, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I want to focus on the second half of that verse. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So this is another thing that we just look, we just think to ourselves, what is going on? Because when we, when we consider the fact that he's saying, okay, abide in me and you'll bear fruit. If you abide in me and you'll bear fruit, guess what you get? You get pruned. Like that's not, that's, the, what, what on earth? Like why is that? It's like I'm bearing fruit. And then we get, we get pruned. And what does this look like? Even though we bear fruit, that fruit is not an indicator that we've arrived. That we've arrived at a place where we've achieved Christ-likeness perfectly. That is not what that means. If we're bearing fruit, it simply means the fact that we're resting in Christ. That we're abiding in Him. And then we can expect, fully expect, that we will be pruned. That we will endure hardship. Um, sometimes as a result of things that we do in our own lives, but sometimes as a result of the simple fact that God is shaping us into he, who He wants us to be. This is God's primary means of making us more Christ-like, is pruning us, is allowing us providentially to go through hardship, to endure suffering. That is the way that He is shaping us. This is why Paul can say in Romans 5, 1-5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our intro, introduction by faith into this, into this grace. Let me say that again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in our hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because of the love of God that has been poured out within our heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It doesn't say, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God, and then we're blessed, and we have no sickness, and we live lives that are perfect, and our kids grow up, and they're perfect, and everything is perfect. That's not what this says. And then it says, and not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character. God is shaping us into someone who perseveres, someone who has proven character, someone who has hope. And that hope does not disappoint. He is shaping us into that because of the pruning process. For James 
writes in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it all joys, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus is pruning us. God the Father is pruning us in order that we might persevere, that we might bear fruit, that we might come to the end of our lives, and we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has. We rest in that. But when we are so frail, we are so fickle, we think to ourselves, how can I love one get cancer? We think to ourselves, how can, how can our marriages be this strained? How can our co-workers spread these nasty rumors? How can our kids always act out in public? We go to, go to this restaurant and their kids are just freaking out and throwing stuff. How can this be happening to me? I've trusted Christ. And the better question is, how could it not? If that is God's chosen way to make us more like Jesus, if the pruning process is God's chosen way to make us more like Jesus, how could he not prune us? And the result of this pruning is that we bear more fruit. It says it right in verse 2. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So what if we what if we would have looked at the hardship and the tribulation that occurred in our lives, that these trials, the suffering that we endure? What if we looked at that? We didn't say to ourselves, or if our brothers and sisters brought it to us, and we said, what if we didn't say remove this from us? What if that wasn't our first prayer? But what if our prayer first and foremost was make us more like Jesus? What if that was our prayer? I think this passage is telling us that that's imperative. That we must be praying and make us more like Jesus. That we wouldn't pray and simply remove this from me. I don't think it's always wrong to pray to have suffering removed. Like we're, we're people, we're frail, we're fickle. Paul prayed that the thorn would be removed from his flesh. It's not wrong. But we just need to take a step further. We just need to say, not only am I enduring the suffering, I desperately want the suffering to end. We need to be intentional in our thought process. How is God making me more like Jesus through this? So in conclusion this morning, as a community, we want to be a community that rests in Jesus. This is why we say community is so important for us to live together. Because me as myself, I fail. I fail to look at Jesus and to abide in him, to rest in his work. Let's be a community that rests in Jesus and, and isn't satisfied to simply, um, to simply talk about uh, just, just our, the weather of the week. But to say, brothers and sisters, how are we resting in Jesus together?
To be a community that knows that He, Jesus, has accomplished all that we need for salvation. Let's be a community that doesn't elevate our comfort. A community that doesn't elevate our avoidance of trials or tribulations. But one that rather desires to abide in Jesus. To have, even as this passage says, to have His words abide in us. And to abide together in his love. We know, that, we know that pruning, right? This pruning process, this suffering, this trial, this tribulation, this hurts. It's not something that we love. But we do love the fact that we're being shaped into Jesus' likeness. In order that we might bear fruit. So the admonition this morning is simply this. Let's abide together. That's what we're called to do. We're, abide, we're called to abide. We're called to do that together. Let's pray.